we see a circular shape, right? A double circular shape. So, you know, maybe this is like a zoomed-in thing of the cat sticking with the mouth or something like that. It's pretty good. Um, it seems like you guys see his stride here with the flower. There are things that are vaguely flower-shaped here. Um, this one is wonderful. I absolutely love this. So, so the fact that someone wrote woof here is the name is a dog. Is that right? Um, and you know, this is amazing. The fact that whoever you know, was able to draw the second one, clearly this is a similar U-shaped animal. It's very, very good. Things start getting a little abstract at this point. And this is absolute chaos. Like, it reminds me of in the movie Inside Out, and they go into like the room of that, was it, uh, I can't remember what the room is, but they go into this room where they start abstracting, and they become less and less, they more and more simplified, so eventually they're like, you know, one-dimensional, and you know, so it kind of reminds me of this absolute devolution of an idea. And I think part of the reason why this game is so hilarious for me to watch, maybe less hilarious for you to participate in, more hilarious for me, is that you start off with this picture of what it's supposed to be. You have the cat. You have the flower. You have something that you clearly know in your mind. This is what it's supposed to look like. And then, when you finally get to the end part, you look at it and say, you know what? That is nothing. It is absolutely nothing like what it's supposed to be. You know, it looks like what it's supposed to look like, but, when we finally get to the end product, it is so vastly different. To the point where you kind of have to wonder, is that really a dog? Is that really a flower? I don't know. You can say it is, but if it doesn't look like one at all, can you really make that argument that it is what it's supposed to be? Now, it doesn't really have any consequences whatsoever, and maybe you seem to be letting me pick on you uh, because your pictures are here. Um, it doesn't really matter in a game like this, but it really matters really important things in life. And the most important thing that anyone here has to be able to discern whether or not it is a real thing or a fake thing is your faith. Is your faith real? Do you actually have a genuine, real faith in Jesus Christ? Are you really a Christian? Because maybe for some of us, we have a certain picture in our minds of what a Christian is supposed to be like. What they're supposed to believe, the way they're supposed to act, what the character life's supposed to be characterized by. And we start off with this picture. But if someone were to take your life and post it up on this wall, would they look at it and say, yeah, that's what a Christian looks like. That's what a Christian's supposed to live, how a Christian's supposed to live. That's what, how a Christian's supposed to believe. That's how they're supposed to respond to God's word. What would you say? If we took your life, the picture of your life, and put it up in this world, would you say that it demonstrates that your faith is real? A person is a Christian if they place their faith in Jesus Christ. If they trust that they cannot save themselves, if they realize that there's no hope to have a relationship with God unless Jesus died for them and rose from the dead for them. That is the foundation of what it means to be a Christian. It is the most important reality, the most, most important thing about you. And so it is worth asking, do you really have it? Do you have a genuine saving faith? And for a lot of you, you've grown up in the church, you grew up in Christian homes with Christian parents, you know the gospel, you can share the gospel as well as I could. You can answer questions about the Bible, you profess a faith in Christ. Now the reality is, is that whenever you have something that's valuable, it is inevitable that counterfeits inevitably emerge. Right? There's such a thing as valuable jewelry, so people create counterfeits. Expensive handbags are a thing, I have no idea why. But there are counterfeits that exist. Years ago, someone gave Jamie, uh, my wife, a product bag. I don't know much about handbags. I think that sounds fancy. And come find out what it is. And so I you know, kind of Googled, like, what is this bag, right? How much is it? And it was like an exorbitantly expensive bag. Like, this is crazy that this much effort and finance we put into something to hold other stuff, right? And I'm just wondering, like, and so, but I'm looking at this thing, it's like, I don't know much about handbags, but it doesn't look like maybe the bag in the world, because oh, for all my expertise in handbags, right? But like, yeah, the stitching's kind of weird. It's like, did, did they, did that label when they said, did they misspell product? You know, it seems kind of awkward. And sure enough, I'm trying to figure out the whole, like, 
how to tell if handbag is real, right? And come to find out that the thing that some that she did and did was a fake. And maybe you feel much better that the inevitably is gonna go to my house and get lost and destroyed or something like that, and I wouldn't feel so guilty about it. But how is it? How is it that you can tell whether something that claims to be valuable is a counterfeit or is a real thing? Or maybe from a distance you can't. Like if I brought that product bag and held it over here, look at my product bag, right? You probably wouldn't be able to tell. But once you get a hold of it, and once you look at it, hold it in your hand, you touch it, you feel it, you scrutinize it, you can tell. You can tell that the seams are out of place. You can tell that, that there's shoddy workmanship. And you can see how it is different from the real thing. It's the same thing with faith. By all appearances, it can look from a distance like someone has the same faith. Right? They may say they're Christian. They, they go to church. They go to youth group. You raise your hands during music. You put on a happy page when you come to church. You have your Bible. You open it up. But once you spend time with that faith, and once you hold it in your hands, then you start to see the shoddy workmanship. And you get the sense there's something that's not right with this. And in the end, you might conclude, you know, it's actually just a counterfeit. Just because you profess to be a Christian and you profess to have faith in Christ, it doesn't mean that you actually have it. So we're in the book of James in the New Testament. And James had a really important brother. You guys remember who his brother was? It was Jesus. And so James' brother, Jesus, actually had, he knew this was true. He says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Jesus himself says, look, there will be people that stand before me on the final day and say, dude, I, I totally profess faith in you. I know you. And Jesus would say, no. You have nothing to do with it. Just because you say it's true, it doesn't make it true. And so our passage tonight, if you look at the book of James, is going to be asked, is addressing this issue. How can you tell? How can you tell if your faith is real? What does real faith look like? And how can you tell if you have it? And here's the answer and kind of the key idea for tonight. That true faith is proven by a changed life. True faith is proven by a changed life. When you take someone who is genuinely a Christian and you hold their faith up to the light and you scrutinize it and you look over it, there is something different about it. It has been changed and transformed in certain magnificent, miraculous ways. And so that's what we're going to do today. As we want to take our faith and hold it up to the light, we have to ask ourselves, is it real? And so take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 2. We're looking at verses 14 to 26. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. Let me read God's word. So what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, what if he says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled? Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was acting along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted in his righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word. Let me pray for us as we begin in this. God, I pray that you would help us tonight to tackle a really challenging and important passage. Uh, there is nothing more critical than to discern whether or not we are in faith 
whether or not Jesus is our Lord and whether or not we have salvation in Him. So God, I pray that by your grace, you help us to have eyes to see our own lives the way that you do. You see us truly and rightly down into the deepest core of who we are. You really know who we are. And so we ask that you would give us discernment to see ourselves the same way that you see us. And so God, I pray that for those here tonight that are maybe going to approach this passage with trepidation and confusion and maybe even a little bit of nervousness, I pray, Father, that more so than just seeing their faith, that they would see Christ more clearly. But they see that, that He is the answer, the one they must look to. And would you be gracious to, to show us His glory and His beauty tonight? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, as we get into this, I think that this passage potentially has potential to be one more confusing and challenging passage for us to study. This is a really, really hard passage. And for a number of reasons. One is I think it's going to force us to keep really big ideas in balance. And it's going to force you to think about the ways that you are prone to being in balance. Um, my wife is a PT, and she's been helping um, some of our kids do some PT work to kind of strengthen certain parts of their bodies because they've got aches and pains, and it's just the benefit of having a physical therapist in the house. And so one of the things that my, my wife has prescribed to all of us, really, is some balancing exercise. Actually, everyone's standing up. So we're going to do some very basic heel raises. Okay, so y'all are just PT, you know what's up here. Alright, so you're going to stand on one leg, and what all you're going to do is you're going to lift up your heel on the foot, and you just pull up on your tippy toe on one foot that you have on the floor, right? Now it's pretty, pretty good, so what you're doing, so you're telling me you're stabilizing your ankle muscles, is that right? You're activating your ankle muscles, that's important. Right, so I, as an old person, this is very hard for me, but you can see all your old people around you that you have a long time. Now do it! Eyes closed. So close your eyes. Try to do it. Okay. All right. So uh, your pastoral PTs uh, do this three times a day. Uh, Ten reps. Uh, okay. Go sit down. Being balanced is hard. Being balanced is really, really hard because there's only one center of balance, and you have all these different, you know, points of weight that are kind of all over the place. And in order to keep in balance, it's a really, really difficult thing. And this is especially true in the Christian faith. There are a lot of truths that we're trying to hold in balance. And there's two that this passage really forces us to try to balance together. One, one truth is that when we are saved, we are saved completely by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You're not saved because of your works. God is not waiting for you to impress Him in order for you to be acceptable for Him. We are saved only because of what Jesus has done for us in the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. That He is our righteousness. And we're accepted because we have placed our faith in Him. And as it, all we have is Christ. He is the only one that can save us, not your works. That's the first truth we have to hold on to. Is that we are saved by grace alone, not because of your works. But even though you're not saved by your works, your works still Matter. That's the other truth that you have to hold in Even though you're not saved by works, your works still matter. Because when you are saved, God changes you. He gives you a new heart. He makes you a new creation so you can actually get to live a life that God wants you to live. And so the two truths that you have to hold in balance is you're, you're saved apart from your works by grace alone. And yet, your works matter. Because your works are evidence of the fact that you really are saved. And those two ideas oftentimes we feel inside of us as if they are butting heads with one another and at odds with one another. But they are two realities we have to hold in balance. They're both true. So not only do you have to balance those two truths, you also have to reckon with the fact that each one of you is prone to be imbalanced in different ways. And so, you know, when I'm doing this exercise, I tend to kind of teeter off to my left. I have no idea why. That's just weird body things that happen. And all of us are prone to imbalance in life in all kinds of ways. Some of you, when it comes to the Christian faith, your tendency is to be imbalanced towards legalism. You guys know what legalism is? So legalism is the idea that you can impress God. Is that you need to live a certain way in order for God to be happy with you. You need to keep doing things and making God happy, and it's all about your beast and what you can do, how you your Bible you can read, 
how much more you can evangelize, how much more you can pray. That's all what you have to do. Yes. Some of you are really prone to that. Especially you high-performing, really ambitious people that are all about grades and getting the right college. They're all about what you can do. And then, there's some of them who are not so much given to leaders. You are given to what we would call licentiousness. And I tried to find another word with an L, right? But licentiousness is a little fancy. It just means like, you kind of just do whatever you want to do. You know, so it's not, you're not so much worried about, oh, what, what do I need to do? You're trying to figure out how little can I do. What can I get away with? You know, it's like, okay, well, you know, it's, you know, we're saved by grace, and so God loves me no matter what, so it doesn't really matter if I fly a little bit. Does it, does it really matter if I should respect my parents? Does it really, really matter if I lust after that person in my heart? Like, whatever, I'm saved by grace. It's not that big you are licentious, you are giving into these things. You don't care at all about righteousness and holiness and whether or not God is pleased with your life because of what you're doing. And some of you are like that. That is where you are in balance. And so for those of you who are prone to legalism, you need to be encouraged by grace and the freedom of the gospel. For those of you who are given to licentiousness, you need to be reminded, no, your works matter. God saved you so he can change you, so you can live a life that is pleasing to him. One of the complicating things about this passage is that it's going to land on some of you very differently. James is going to cause you to look at your life. He's going to call you, tell you you need to evaluate how you live. And it should shed light, honestly, on whether or not you're really a Christian. And there's going to be a whole spectrum of ways that you all will feel about this. On one end of the spectrum, there's some of you who are going to hear this and you're going to think to yourself, yeah, I am a Christian. You know, based on what this passage says, based on the evidence of my life and what I believe and my, my heart, I, I love Jesus, I'm following him. I, I, yeah, I'm a Christian. I think it's me. You know, I'm not perfect, but I'm following Jesus. And then there's some of you who are on the other end of the spectrum. Like, you're going to hear this passage and you're going to realize, nope, that's not me at all. I'm not a Christian. Maybe some of you already know that. You, know, you, might, you might already know you're not a Christian, but there's some of you who might hear this passage tonight and come to the conclusion, gosh, the evidence of this passage, I'm not a believer. And then there will be some of you who are all the way in the middle of the tree, where you're going to hear this passage and you're going to think, I think I'm a Christian. I thought I was a Christian. Maybe I'm not. I mean, sometimes I feel like it's a like that. I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of in the middle. And maybe your temptation will be to feel more confused and distraught because it's going to put you in a state of limbo. This has the potential to be kind of scary and kind of confusing for some of us. And I want to encourage you that that's okay. It's okay for this passage to make you question things and to make you feel uncomfortable about whether or not we think it's real. Um, 2 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that we're told, we're told to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. We can't take it for granted. We have to know, is my faith real? There is no other more important issue in life. So at the end of this, I don't want to just give, leave you in a state of confusion. I want to give you some tangible belong to you. Where, so where would you go right, if you feel confused? And so we're going to hopefully handle that at the end of it. But for right now, we're going to walk through this passage. And James is going to give us two things to discuss. He's going to look at false faith described and true faith displayed. Get false faith described and then we'll see true faith displayed. So let's look at this description of false faith. And we'll start at verse 14. So James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So James is talking about a certain kind of faith. He says that faith. And it's a faith that doesn't have works. Meaning, this person says they have faith in Jesus, they say they're a Christian, but their life doesn't actually seem to demonstrate any difference at all. There's no change. There's no difference. And James asks, literally, what profit is it? What good is it? What benefit is there? What help is there? If you say you have this kind of faith, but it has no works to come along with it, if there's no difference in your life, can this kind of faith that has no works at all, can that kind of faith save him? And the answer is no, because it proves that it's not a real faith at all. If you say you have faith, but your life doesn't display any change or any evidence of that faith, then it means that your faith is not real. 
your works, your changed life, they have evidence of the fact that you have changed hearts, that God has really made a difference, that you really believe the gospel. Now, this is different from saying that you are saved because of a changed life. It's so important. You have to get this order right. You cannot get this backwards. And the difference is between life and legalism. You don't change your life so that you have faith and you get saved. The order is apparent. No, you, a changed life is not the root of your salvation. It is the fruit of your salvation. So I have to offer my congratulations. Uh, as a Giants fan, I have to offer my humble congratulations that you, Dodgers people, have landed Shohei Otani. I can see that this has happened. I acknowledge this is a reality in my life, and it's going to be really, really annoying next 10 years for me uh, to constantly be hearing about this because I really thought we were going to get him. I thought we were going to get a chance. Um, now, before this, right, in case you didn't know, Shohei Otani, who by a number of different people has been described as a beautiful man. Okay. I don't know why, all the descriptions that have been used of Shohei, beautiful man is the one that the most, and he's a, he's a beautiful man. So Shohei right, is the best baseball player in the world. He's a once-a-generation kind of player. He was previously playing for both Sanchez teams. And so it was a big deal when he became a free agent. Where was he going to go? Everyone wanted him, right? And uh, he ended up landing to my great chagrin and uh, my eternal torment. He landed here in Los Angeles with the Dodgers. <coughs> Congratulations. Now, when did he become a Dodger? At what point did he become a Dodger? When he signed the contract, right? So there's a legal moment where it's a piece of paper in front of him that says he's going to make, I don't know, 18 billion dollars or whatever the number was, and he signs his name at the bottom of it, he signs the contract, and from that moment on, he is a dodger, based under contract. How do you know? Like, when you actually go watch a game that will now cost you like a thousand dollars to receive, it's impossible. So when you go to a dodger game, how can you, how do you know? That show you that it's not a fever dream, that, you know, that it's actually happened, that Shohei Tani is part of your team. How do you know? It's because when he runs out in the field, he's wearing a Dodgers uniform. Right? Because he's actually, when he's pitching, he's trying to strike out the opposing team. He's actually trying to score runs for the Dodgers. It's by evidence of how he's playing the game that he's demonstrating what team he's on. Now that is different from when he became a Dodger. Right? So you and I are not just run onto the field and decide and to try to throw a pitch at someone and say, oh, I'm a Dodger now, right? That doesn't happen. You have to sign the contract first in order to be a Dodger. But the evidence comes when you actually watch him play. The order is imperative. <coughs> so if you profess to be a Christian, if you profess to have signed the contract, and yet when you actually step out onto the field and you seem to be playing for a different team, what is it supposed to say about whether men actually signed that contract? Whether or not your faith is real or if it's a fake? So James offers a, a sort of case study to demonstrate how this works out. Or one of the biggest areas of life where our faith should lead to change and transformation is how we treat other people. So up to this point in the letter, James has been focusing a lot on favoritism, on failing to love people. So it makes sense to use that as a test case. So think about for your life. Does your treatment of people demonstrate that you really are a Christian? Look at James 2.15. So if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, one who says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works at, is dead. So James is describing a situation where your Christian friend, your Christian buddy, is in severe need. They're poorly clothed, right? They said they don't even have the basic clothes they need to, for whatever conditions they're in. They're lacking in daily food, so they're perpetually conditioned underfed. And so James says, you see this person, you see their name, and you say, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. Now that feels like a really fancy thing to say, and people look at you kind of strange if you were to say something like that. But this is actually kind of a common way to speak in this time. This is a common biblical phrase. And like saying, like, see ya, peace out, that kind of thing. But to, uh, to say to someone who's going to go in peace with more than just like, oh, have a nice day. 
It was to have shalom and have wholeness for everything in your life to go well. To be warmed and filled, have all your needs met. Like, that sounds great. What a wonderful thing to say to somebody. This person knows exactly what this person needs. They know to say things in a beautiful, helpful, kind way. This is someone who must really, really love this person. This is clearly someone who has been changed by the gospel. The words are changed. Because James says that these things are said without giving them the things they need for their lives. This person says stuff, but they do nothing. And James asks a rhetorical question. What good is that? What good is it if you just say stuff and do nothing? So James uses relationships as, as a test case, but really, this should be true for all of us. When you place your faith in Christ, you're declaring that all of your life belongs to Him. That he is your King. He is your Lord. He is your Master. He is all of you. And so by evidence of your life, who is your King? Who is your Lord? Who is your Master? Is it Jesus or is it someone else? So James comes to this conclusion. He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. So this supposed faith is just a sham. What appears on the surface to be vibrant, living, and real is in fact nothing more than a rotting course. So guys, you say you're a Christian. You say you're a Christian. You say that you love God. You say that you understand the love of God. What proof is there in your Just from Jesus' experience, says the way you love people demonstrate that you receive the love of God. Does the way that you love people demonstrate that you love God? Does the way that you treat people demonstrate that your faith is alive or dead? James keeps hammering this. He says in verse 18, Well, someone will say, You have faith. So this is a really difficult passage. I think this is what it was like. So James is talking to us. He's talking to his audience. He's telling them the difference between false faith and true faith. And then he introduces this imaginary objective. Okay, it's like a third part. He says it's someone. And someone doesn't like what James is saying. And he tries to assure these people with the supposed faith that they're really okay. So this objector is saying, okay, don't worry. James is crazy. Because, okay, there's two kinds of people in the world, okay? They're faith people. They're faith people. And all those people have to be faithful to believe, right? You grew up in the church, you prayed a prayer in Sunday school, you've been part of the church forever. You have faith, you believe. But James, James, James is a works guy. He has works. He's concerned about stuff like feeding the poor, living differently, but aren't you saved by grace? Aren't you a faith person? Don't your works have nothing to do with being Christian? Don't worry. You're saved by grace, by faith. Don't worry about your works. You'll be fine. And you have to feel the power of this argument because there's some truth in it. Because you are saved by grace. All you have to do is believe and you will be saved and you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. But at the same time, your works matter. The issue at hand is not what saves you. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Christ saves you apart from your works. The issue is what proves that you are saved. In verse 18, James misses the point. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. If you have true faith, it will always result in a changed life. James then gives this really striking illustration in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. When he says, you believe that God is one, this is one of the core defining truths about Christianity, that there's only one God. And James said, great, awesome, good job, you believe that. Even demons believe that. The most evil beings in the universe believe true things about God. Even demons have the same kind of they understand the truth, they acknowledge the truth, they even believe that truth, but they don't love that truth. They know that God is one, and they hate God with all of their being. It says that they shudder. Like their response to the truth about God is loathing 
and resent it because they hate God and they hate the truth. I think there are a lot of people in this room who can tell me a lot of true things about God, a lot of true things about Christian faith. It's not enough to just know what is true. You have to go beyond really knowing the truth because true faith loves the truth. True faith loves God, loves the reality of who God is. When you hear what God's word says about who God is, like, and how you have to live, and, and who you are, do you love it? I think one of the most concerning and the saddest things to see as a pastor, and a friend, just as a Christian, is when the word of God is taught, when you have the word of God in front of you, when you have the word of God sitting in your bed, I mean, I stand at home, when it's on your phone, and it's not that you disagree with it. It's not that you're angry at it. It's not that, you know, like you're really just in a burning Bible. It's just that you don't care. You just don't care about it. Because it feels so familiar, and it feels so old, and it feels so relevant. And it's, yeah, I know it's true, but that's not interesting to me. At least the demons shut up. At least they have a good sense to realize that what they're dealing with is the truth about it. God of the universe, and it causes them to shudder. And I think for a lot of us, we don't even have that. We just have indifference and ignorance. So James paints this picture of false faith. It's a really serious, severe statement. It's a faith with no obedience, and he fires one last salvo in verse 20. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Like, is your faith useless? That's the question he has for us. So that would all feel terrible. So what does it actually look like then to have a true faith, a real faith, a genuine faith? And now this is the true faith in this way. Um, for a long time, the, the way that people kind of approached this topic would have this classic illustration okay, about secret service agents and how they would identify what is the counterfeit dollar. Have you guys ever heard this illustration before? Probably. I feel like every pastor I've ever heard of God always uses this illustration. Uh, come to find out it's not true. <laughs> but, but it's a good illustration. So I'll pretend like it's true. Okay. So, Secret Service is the law enforcement agency that's in charge of counterfeits and making sure that currency is supposed to be supposed to be. And so, how in the world do you know whether or not a bill is real? And the legend is that you can't study all the things. You can't study every possible way that a bill could be faked. There's too many. And so, what you do is you study the real thing. You just look at a real bill long enough so that you know it so well that you, when, the moment you see something that is false and fake and phony, you can identify it right away. So that doesn't smell right because I know the real thing. I kind of find out it's, it's the actual thing, but I like the story. But I do think that that applies to so much of life. That the better you know the real thing, the better you'll be able to identify when the false thing comes. And so for you, what does the real faith look like? James offers two different examples of true faith. He offers them to two people, Abraham and Rahab. And these are two totally different people. Abraham is like the father of the Jewish nation. He's like the, the hero, the absolute, the dopest, like, OG of the Jewish faith. There's no one they love or respect more than this guy, okay? And then you have Rahab. And Rahab is a Gentile prostitute. And James is going to say, you know who demonstrated real faith? These two people. But these two extreme ends of life. <clears throat> and James is choosing these two people because he wants to see that no matter where this person is from, the test of true faith is always the same. It's a changed life. Look at verse 21. So was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So James is talking about a story in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 22. You guys remember this story? So God had promised that Abraham would receive a son. And that from that son, there was going to be a great nation that would bless the whole. And Abraham waited and waited and waited. For decades he waited for a son. And God finally gives him a son and his name is Isaac. And he is Abraham's beloved son. And everything's looking great. Abraham's a great dad. Isaac's a great son. God's promises are looking good. 
And so one day, God commands Abraham to go up on the mountain and to offer a sacrifice. And Abraham obeys. But here's the twist. The sacrifice that Abraham was offered was a son. God told him, I want you to go and offer your only beloved son as a sacrifice. And Abraham obeys. He takes Isaac up on the mountain with him. He lays down the wood on the altar. He ties up his son. And he sets him on top of the wood. And the knife is raised in the air. And he's ready to obey God and slaughter his son. And God speaks to him. And God tells him, don't do it. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And God provides him a ram instead. There's a ram stuck in a bush that says, offer that ram as a sacrifice instead. And James looks back at this story and he says, you want to know what true faith looks like? It's that. It's obedience to God. Even in the most extreme and craziest circumstances, whatever it is that God asked you to do, you would do it. He was so confident in the promises of God that the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God would actually raise his son from the dead. Because who in the right mind would kill their son? But Abraham's faith was such a strong faith. He said, no, even if I don't understand it, God has to have a way out of this thing, so I'm going to obey, no matter how crazy he might be. That's the nature of true faith. That whatever it is that God asks of you, you will do it. Now, was Abraham saved because he obeyed? There's some people that have argued that from this passage, that because Abraham obeyed, that's when he was actually saved. But that's not what this passage teaches us. Works never save anyone. Abraham's obedience never saved him. His faith in God is what saved. So when James is saying that we're justified by works, all he's saying is that our works prove that our faith is genuine. That's what he means. So that's Abraham. And that's may not be very helpful for you because he seems like a pretty godly guy. But then James brings up another example, a completely different person. Rahab the prostitute. Look at verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So do you guys know the story of Rahab? This is, you know, way back in the Old Testament. So Joshua and the nation of Israel are about to enter into the promised land. And their first stop is Jericho. And so what they do is they send spies into the city, check it out, and they find themselves staying in the house of a woman named Rahab. Rahab is a woman. Rahab is a prostitute. And Rahab is a Canaanite, one of the sworn enemies of Israel. If there was anyone who was less likely to have faith in the true God of Israel, it would have been this woman. But somehow Rahab had heard of the true God. And she had heard that his God was powerful and merciful to his people. That he had rescued them from, from Egypt out of captivity. And in Joshua 2.11, it says that her heart melted. And with God's judgment knocking on the door of her city, she throws herself at the mercy of God, and she commits to this God, and she has faith in Him. And then these spies are in her house, and the people from the city, they come looking for these spies, because they don't want to have these Israel spies in their cities. So what does she do? She hides them on the roof, and she lets them go. That, Jesus says, is evidence of her faith. That she was willing to be loyal and obedient to this God. And would you ever have thought that we needed to learn a lesson from a prostitute? And she's put forward as an example of true faith. She's willing to stand in opposition to her family, to her friends, her city, her people, because of her faith in the true God. So we've seen. So we've seen true faith displayed. We've seen false faith described. Here's the million dollar question. Where are you? As you look at your own life and your own faith, where are you? Is your faith false or is it true? <clears throat> so there's a lot of ways I think that we can examine this, but I do want to offer you guys just some questions to ask yourself. Because it is not just as simple as saying, well, am I different? You know, there's a lot of other things to consider. 
And so there are some questions I think I have in your notes that hopefully will help you just think about these things. And, and I think that for you to be able to think about them deeply will require more time than just even tonight, small groups. I think these are things I want you to be thinking about. They should honestly haunt you. These are questions that should be running through your mind and your heart constantly. The one question you ask yourself to determine whether or not you're really a Christian is, it might seem to everyone, it's like really simple, but do you believe the gospel message? Like, do you actually believe the gospel? Do you believe that God is holy? Do you believe that you're a sinner? Do you believe that you're under condemnation? And do you believe that Jesus came to live the perfect life you're unable to, to die on the cross and be raised for you? And then if you confess your sin and have faith in him, that you can be accepted as a son or a daughter. I know so many of you have grown up hearing that truth and hearing this story forever. The question is, do you really believe it? When you hear that, do, you, do your heart soar? Do you find your, your head nodding and saying, yes, that is true, that is real, that's what's real about this world? Do you actually believe it? In your mind, in your heart, do you believe it? Another question to ask yourself, what is your attitude towards God and His Word? When the things of God are present, when His Word is present, are you filled with indifference or are you filled with delight? Are you like the demons? Are you just around the things of God and it just kind of makes you feel just kind of bored or upset or anxious or whatever? Like, or is there a delight? Are you like the demons? Or are you like King David in Psalm 42 who says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When you think about the way you actually feel about God, is it love and excitement and delight? Or is it indifference? Another question to ask yourself. Has Christ changed the direction of your life? So one of the things that can be really discouraging about this passage thinking, well, yeah, okay, I'm supposed to live this changed life, but I see so much sin and struggle and difficulty in my life. I'm not perfect, but I need you to I sin this morning. I sin coming here to church, right? And I just, what am I supposed to do with that? Because I'm not, I'm, I'm still sinful. And the reality is that even though you become a Christian, until you are at home with God forever in heaven, and you are perfected there, in this life, we will struggle with sin. We have what is called indwelling sin, remaining sin still in us, and we'll struggle with that till the day we die. It's just part of living in a fallen world. But the difference, the difference is that when you become a Christian, God changes the direction of your life. One way of thinking about it is that you are, you can tell you are a Christian not by the perfection of your life, but by the direction of your life. Not whether or not you are perfect, because we will not be. So don't look at your life and think, well, I I have this much sin, and you know, therefore I am not a Christian, why I am a Christian. No, look at the evidence and you know, do I fight my sins a little bit more? Do I hate my sins a little bit more? Am I struggling with this a little bit less than I used to? Is there a direction in your life that shows that, you know, God is slowly working in me, transforming into the image of Christ? For both Abraham and Rahab, they have a real faith, but they want perfect. For the rest of their lives, they have struggled with sin in different ways, and they need the same thing for us. A related question to this to determine whether or not there's a change in the direction of your life is evaluating your relationship with sin. The question is not, is there sin in your life? We're always going to have sin in our life. But what is your relationship with sin? Specifically, you can ask yourself this question. Do you fight your sin or do you feed your sin? Do you fight your sin or do you feed your sin? Because if you fight your sin, if you're striving against it, and if you are uh, making inroads against and trying to figure out how you can combat this thing, it is proof that you're alive. If you are on a battlefield where a war is raging, and you look across that battlefield, how can you know who's alive and who's not? The ones who are alive are the ones that are still fighting. They're bloody and bruised, and they may be taking damage, and they may be falling back at some moments, but they are still fighting. The fact that they're fighting proves that they're alive. You know who's not alive? It's the corpses who are lying there doing nothing. And so when you look at the sin in your life, are you actually fighting it? Or are you feeding it? And giving it to it constantly, not making, and just making accommodations for it? Do you fight your sin or do you feed your sin? 
Now, inevitably, we're going to fail. The question is, what do you do when you fail? Because Christians respond differently to the failure of sin. You might struggle with one option. You struggle with, you might experience remorse. You just feel bad about it. I can't believe I did that. Ah, it's so awful. Ugh, why did I do that again? Or you can feel resolution. Like, okay, I know it was bad. I'm going to do better next time. Okay, I don't need to tell anybody else I did this, you know, that happened again. One-time thing, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure it out. I'm gonna figure about where it's gonna do better. It's not gonna happen again. I'll do better next time. And neither of those things by themselves are how Christians respond in failure. The right response is not just for remorse, it's not just resolution, it's repentance. It's to come to God and say, God have mercy on this. I can't earn your fear, I can't prove anything to you. I just need you to have mercy on me. I'm so sorry for offending you. Would you allow me to obey you more wholeheartedly? But forgive me, God. I am a sinner. You need to repent. Another question to ask yourself. Are you trying to earn God's love? Or are you living in response to God's love? Like, do you go through life and just think, okay, I just gotta make God happy. And if I just do this a little bit better, if I just improve this and a little bit, then God will finally be happy with me. And if that's the way you're living, but you're not understanding the truth of the gospel, but instead of living to earn God's love, we, need we should be responding to God's love. That's the motivation for obedience. That God so loved us and so transformed us that now we can actually live the way He wants to. A number of years ago, years ago, Steph Curry was giving an interview, and he said this about his own career. He said, I have nothing left to prove. Right? How are you? Yeah, the greatest three-point shooter the world's ever seen. And so I have nothing to prove. But I have a lot to accomplish. And there's a subtle difference there. That you don't have anything to prove to God that you are worthy or that you deserve His love. He's already done that for you in Christ. And, but at the same time, He's given you a lot to accomplish. He's created you for good works. And so out of God's love, you can now obey Him and live for Him. So where does that leave us? There are some people here who are true Christians. And as you look at your life, you think, yeah, I am trying to water. Don't be embarrassed to say that about yourself. You didn't think, oh, I don't know if I am. If you think you're a Christian, it's great. Love, love that reality in your life that you are a Christian. You hear God's word humbly, you respond to it humbly, you read over your sin, <coughs> you run to Christ as your Savior. <coughs> and you're not perfect, but you're fighting your sin and pursuing Christ. But even though there are some Christians that are here, there are also some corpses. I don't know how many of you guys have ever been to a funeral before. And I don't think this is very common anymore, but at least a lot of funerals I went to as a kid, they would open caskets. And so they would have the deceased person lying there in the casket and just open so you could see that person's body in there. And one of the things that I always thought was so strange was that there was always a red light bulb that was shining above the casket and shining down on the body of the deceased person. And the reason for that is because they want to make this person look like they're alive. Because when you die, your blood stops flowing, and so your skin turns this kind of like sickly shaded green. And they don't want you to look like that in your final moments, you know, here uh, in this in this home. So they shine this red light on to give you the sense that there's life. But it doesn't take long for anyone to realize that it's just a sham. That there's no life there. And that maybe you, you may be deceiving yourself into thinking that you're a Christian, but in reality you're not. That you've been in the church forever, you know all the right answers from the outside, everyone might think you're a Christian, but if you look at your own heart, you don't love God. You don't fight against your sin, you don't strike for holiness, you don't grieve over your sin, you're not repenting, you're not turning away from your sin and running to Christ. In fact, you might use the gospel of God's grace as an excuse for you to continue in sin and to continue to disobey and run away from God. And then there's some of you who feel unsure. You just don't know. It's all very overwhelming. You're not totally sure how to process all of it. And those may feel like three different kinds of people, but I want to close with this. That there's some really good news. That for those three different kinds of people, those who know they're Christians, those who know they're not Christians, and for those who are sure, the next step for each of you is the same. It is to look to Christ. Every person here, that is your next step. Jesus is the next step for you. If you're a Christian, 
Keep looking to Christ. Be amazed that He loves you and He died. Fight your sin, not to earn His favor, but because He loves you. If you don't think you're a Christian, I would plead with you to look to Christ and recognize that eternity hangs in the balance without Him. Whatever it is that you're looking for in life, you are meant to fight it in Jesus. You are not too far for Him. You can be saved. And if you're feeling as if you're in a place of uncertainty, look to Christ. Take your doubt and your uncertainty to Christ. Don't trust in how sure you are of anything or your ability to figure out or diagnose every facet of your heart. Trust that Christ's gospel is enough to overcome all of it. One of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark is the story of this father who comes to bring his son who's demon-possessed to Jesus, and he's just desperate to have Jesus help him. And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Right? And the man says, if you, if, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And you just hear this like wavering, if you can do anything, he's like, no, no, no. And Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And then the father cries out, and this is, I feel like, my prayer every day. I believe. Help my unbelief. And that may be something. I, I do believe, but there's so much of my heart that just feels like it doesn't believe. And I don't know where that is, God. But God, I, I just believe. Help me in my unbelief. Take your confusion and your uncertainty to Christ. You guys realize this is a really heavy message uh, to kind of process and a lot of things to think about. But one other thing that is really critical to discerning whether your faith is real is to include other people in the process. And so as we're talking about this in songs, I hope that we're honest with one another. You know, like if there are questions that we have and things that are difficult about this, that you're sharing with one another. And your small group leaders are eager to talk to you about it. I would love to talk to you about it. But let's pray together and uh, let's examine our own faith together. God, we're so thankful for this passage. It is a hard, difficult, and sobering one. But I pray, Father, that my friends here would take stock of their lives and they would know whether or not their faith is there's nothing more important. There is no, more, no greater reality to be certain of. And so God, I pray that for those who are in you, that have a genuine faith, that you would affirm it, strengthen it, that they would be excited uh, about the faith that they have. I pray for those that don't know you, that you would do a great work in showing them that, that Christ is who they need, and that they can have life everlasting and a purposeful life now. And I pray for those that are discouraged and uncertain, I pray that they have the new clarity to even in their uncertainty, that they will cling to Christ, that He is certain, that He is sure. And so, God, would you bless us as we bring in your small groups, help us to just talk honestly and humbly, would you give us grace? Christ in your prayer. Thank you.